Hi, I'm Ali. And I'm Penny. And you're listening to Not Too Busy to Write. The podcast about writing, publishing and creativity amongst life's many other demands. Hi, this week, Ali and I are going to talk about reading as writers. And it's a bit of a broad topic. So I think we'll lay out what we both uh, sort of imagined that we would talk about in this topic. We just realized as we were chatting beforehand, it's so broad. Um, so we're going to talk about books about writing, but also books about story and creativity. Um, and also just generally what we read when we're writing for technical support. And that might be within the genre, the genre that we're writing in, or it might be in a completely different genre, or it could be anything really. And I think also we're going to talk a little bit about um, books about writers that also inspire us a little bit as well so it's quite a broad one today but I guess we'll just get started and see how we go maybe it'll turn into another episode who knows um, yeah I think that we both have um, our own approach to this subject as well yeah. which makes it even more interesting because we from checking beforehand we definitely have a different approach to our reading and how we use it and bring it to our work and how it shows up in our work as well so what kind of books do you find inform your writing mm. well I I think I probably uh, on a couple of different levels I um I really like understanding um and talking about and reading about story and for my the way I see it is it doesn't matter what you're writing story is the most important thing it doesn't matter if you're writing fiction or non-fiction if you're writing a newsletter or um, a social media post or you're writing a whole book or whatever you're writing it all comes down to story and to me that's the most important thing and so you can learn that from anywhere at all um, but in terms of technical stuff, like, there's a few books about story and about like the test te technical aspects of story that I absolutely love. Um, but also, um, you, I love learning that from from other um, from from other novels. Even if I use techniques that are used in novels and put it in nonfiction. Mm -hmm. I don't you? think there's a massive. Yeah, I don't think there's a huge difference um, between fiction and non-fiction because like you say they both have to tell a good story and I think that that's quite often where um, non-fiction can fall down if the story is lacking if the writer yeah. is um, hurling lots of facts at you without kind of thinking about well how do I plot this how do I um, draw you in and so I would say that they're they're basically the same thing apart from one you can make up and one you'll get slapped around the wrist if you do so <laughs> yeah. that's, that's one has to have some technical details um, absolutely correct yes yes um <laughs> are you, yeah it's slapped around the wrist or sued so it's quite <laughs> important that you follow the constraints for me um what i really like is um, and it's, it's really nerdy. I'm, I am at heart, and um, I actually on my sleeve, a total nerd. I love reading um, lit theory. I did a lot of lit theory at uni, and when I want to relax, I tend to go back to the theorists. Um, but what I really like is thinking about the medium that I'm using. So I really mm. like thinking about writing, just like I think painters probably get obsessed with paint. I'm really obsessed with words um, mm. on quite a... So like on the craft level? Um, on 
quite a granular level, mm -hmm. I think. I really think that it's really, really important to love your medium. I know mm -hmm. that some writers don't necessarily like writing. They like that kind of conveying information or they like telling a story. They don't mm -hmm. necessarily like what they're telling it with. Yeah. I love what you're telling with. I love yeah. words. I always have, like, I love the shape of words and I love how they feel in your mouth. Mm. And I think that that's just this kind of thing. So I love reading about writing and I love thinking about words. Um, I think. So, uh, start, start us off with um, with one of your go-to's books that you really love to think about writing. Well, quite oddly, I really, really like, and I think it should be in every writer's toolkit, I think we should all have an etymological dictionary. Ooh. I think that that is really important because I happen to believe, and it's quite controversial, that there's no such thing as a synonym. Mm -hmm. I think that Every word has its own history, its own weight, its own meaning and its own value. And you have to find the right word. And I'm really pedantic about this. Like my children hate me because they even know that phrase from when they were probably <laughs> do you, born. Do you, so, know yeah. the, do you know the writer David Crystal? No, I don't. Oh my goodness. Okay, I'm going to get you one of his books. He's um, he's a, a, a lecturer. What would you describe him as? I've seen him at Hay a number of times. He brings out so many books on the English language that he's basically there every single year giving a lecture. Um, and he writes about the history of English and its entomology and um, and the way it's changed over time. And he's so fascinating. And he's like the lecturer at university that you desperately wished you always had. He's just so charismatic. Um, and the way he talks about the language and the history of it is just incredible. I'm going to have to um, find some of his books and send them to you. Yeah, because I think all of that is absolutely fascinating. I think that, you know, language has its own meaning and its own root and the closer that you can get to the root of the word the more that you actually understand what you're saying yeah. and you understand what the words are saying so I find that really helpful in terms of um lit theorists I love Derrida I really like dead Frenchman um, that's so funny and I think we had this conversation recently um I did all of that in film school yeah, we did. Yeah. So, so we've studied him from like in through different mediums. Um, uh -huh. but yeah, the same thing. Yeah. I think he's really adaptable because he's really looking at things from such a kind of, God, kind of esoteric level that mm. it becomes applicable across different mediums. Um, yeah. So I really like Derrida and I find kind of, I keep going back to him. I got a book of, interviews um with him which is quite um ironic since he spent a lot of time looking at the binary um between speech and writing and which was superior and which wasn't so um yeah he's written down lectures and yeah I, I really find it quite comforting to go back to him and back to his work when it comes to writers who I think use words on a really um attention to detail level there are three that stand out um and they're all women and Lydia Davis I would say Amy Hempel and Laurie Moore they are all 
incredible writers. Lydia Davis is the um, mistress of the short story. Mm. She can write a short story. Um, one of her stories, which I know off by heart because it's very short, is called Index Entry. Christian, I'm not a, and that's a full story. Mm which I absolutely adore and I love them. And I think they're so useful because if you're wanting to learn how to sharpen your prose, you can't go wrong with looking at people who use prose on that kind of scalpel-like level yeah. where they've stripped everything away. Um, and I think that comes back to knowing the rules of your medium and knowing the rules of what you're working in because you can't break rules if you don't know them yeah it's like I always think of it like Picasso's bull um which was obviously like a subtractive process he could only get those beautiful lines of a bull by knowing how to draw a proper bull yeah you can't wing it you can't this is the thing I totally agree as well like having been a a photographer for many years I would completely agree from a photography perspective as well like you can do whatever you want the photography but you do need to know the kind of the medium and you need to understand the technicalities of the medium yeah. to be able to break those rules as well yeah exactly I think if you don't know it it just ends up being a bit sloppy or a bit messy and one well, of you can't you... recreate it ever it's a it's a kind of happy accident <laughs> <laughs> and then you get what to in a lot of visual mediums <laughs> um, yes then the imposter syndrome is perhaps not necessarily <laughs> imposter syndrome um yeah so I think it's just really important to kind of if you want to learn the rules there are some people who you can really start with and I say that all of them you can start seeing how pros can work yeah, it will, works really well. We'll put all of these in the show notes as well. So anyone who wants to dive in can dive in. Yeah, there's going to be a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love, I've got a mixture of stuff here, quite different to your stuff that you've got, I think, um, which is good. We've got a nice mixture. Oh, it's um, very good. I um, love um, talking and reading and understanding story from a story point of view, no matter, I guess you can take it out of the context of the medium. But, um, but to me, I think partly because I grew up in a film household, it was what we did constantly. It was how we communicated is what we talked about. Um, and to me, that translates very easily, I guess, into the written form as well. Um, one book that I absolutely love um, is called Do Story by Bobette Buster. And Do is like a, um, the Do Lectures are based in Wales, um, run by um, by David and Claire Hyatt. And um, it's a bit like a sort of TED talk thing that happens in the Welsh countryside. And um, they're absolutely brilliant. And they they started, there's a publishing company now that is alongside it called The Do. And so there's all sorts of books that they publish. But The Do Story one is by Bobette Buster, who is, um, she is a lecturer um, and kind of um, on story and she works with with companies like Pixar and Disney and those kind of things to do story development within film but also does it in other mediums as well um, and the book is so brilliant it really just breaks down it's very short it just breaks down what the elements of story are and mm. why story is important and how we use story to communicate really really important ideas um, and it's so fantastic and I think anyone in any medium whatever medium you're working in whether it's whether you're writing speeches 
um, or whether you're writing newsletters or whether you're doing marketing for your own personal brand or whether you're writing books or you're writing screenplays or plays or whatever you're doing, it is such an incredible book because it's mm. all about like what it is, why stories are important to humans and how we communicate them. I mean, it's really, really wonderful book. I think that sounds really brilliant. I think it's really important to understand um, that whatever you're writing, you have to have something that's going to propel the narrative as well, which obviously is what story is. It keeps it moving. Um, and I quite often use um, books in uh, a way to try and work out what it is I want to do when I'm yes. telling the story. So if yeah. I have a particular technical problem I won't necessarily read a book that's in the same genre but I will try and read books that are doing the thing that I need to be able to solve so um, just now I'm trying to think of ways of telling a story chronologically backwards which is um, an awful constraint to impose on yourself but so I'm reading books where they, someone has done that where writers have done that successfully yeah um, and then oh I'm gonna get of, my thinking cap on about that one and see if I can think of any I've got a lot it's fine <laughs> <laughs> but it's that like stripping back you know do that you know how do you just work backwards in time or do people have to actually physically walk backwards do they have to throw their food up you know all these kind of things of working out and you can there's always um someone who will have done what you're trying to do and someone who will have done it well that's so true and you were the one who when I was working on this fiction project that was um going in two timelines and I was explaining what I thought I might do with it and you were the one that completely nailed the book I needed to read <laughs> to see it technically yes so, and I yes. think listeners you, Ali is yeah. very good at this and knowing which books to turn to when you have a technical difficulty <laughs> well I was really fortunate so when I did my MA we had a writer in residence and he was brilliant but we also had and I don't know if any other MAs do this I know the MA I did doesn't do it anymore we had a reader in residence yes you said that is just sounds like the dreamiest thing ever it was, he completely changed um, how I read. And because he changed how I read, he changed how I write and how I approach writing as well. Yeah. And so I think if you can get yourself a kind of, um, I know there are reading doctors out there who there will. Are. Yeah. There are, yes. In fact, the School of Life has one, I think. Um, they have a, um, a reading um, what do they call them? A reading um, psychologist, a reading, I can't remember what they call them. Um, and then there's also um, a bibliotherapist. Um, and then I, there's another bibliotherapist that I found. I'm going to put her in the show notes as well. And you can, you can go to her with your writing, reading dilemmas and say, I want to read this very, in this very specific mm -hmm. area. Um, and she will go off and she will come back with your prescription. Yeah, I or think you could go brilliant. to her with a certain emotional or philosophical dilemma and she could come back. But you could go to her with like specific kind of technical things mm. as well and she could find them for you. Um, yeah, no, incredible. It's a really good way of, um, of learning how to fix your technical problems. And then if you, um, another thing I would say is really valuable to do is to subscribe if you can ask for this for birthday presents to subscribe to the London Review of Books and also to the... Um, to the TLS as well, the mm. Times Literary Supplement. If you subscribe to them and also to the bookseller, you will know what books 
are coming out, but also what books have come out and what they are about. And then you get kind of a more idea of what's happening technically in these books as well. So I find that that really helps because you kind of learn the context. Um, yeah, and I would say as well, when you know what you're wanting to work on, it can be really good to find um, the most ambitious book in the genre that you're working in. Yes, that's interesting. Go for the more ambitious rather than the safer choice. Mm -hmm. Go for the most ambitious and look at why, why you're drawn to it what they're doing and mm. what you not I'm not saying that you want to ape it or you want to copy it but it gives you just something higher to yeah. aim for um when I was writing the last days I read the years by Annie Erno which is quite possibly um one of the best um and technically adroit memoirs that I have ever read it is stunning it manages to evoke the collective instead of the individual it's almost like a collective mm. memoir it's very oh. very clever um and so I learned a lot from that I learned a lot about what I couldn't do and I learned a lot about what I wanted to do and my book in the end is nothing like it because I had the very wild idea of writing in the second person which no publisher thought was a very good idea so <laughs> my book is now very firmly in the first person but I think these things are really valuable I think it's really valuable to make missteps as well um sometimes your reading might guide you into um new territory that doesn't always work but well that's interesting to go I feel it. like we should probably talk about this I think a lot of people are sometimes afraid of reading something that's going to influence them too much when they're writing mm. and it's that I find really interesting because like, for instance, when I was writing Tender um, and I had heard other writers say on interviews and stuff, oh, I don't read in my genre when I'm writing. And I'm like, I'm writing nonfiction. I'm reading. I have to read. I, ha I think I read 60 texts to be able to reference the mm -hmm. material I need to reference. I'm like, I can't not read. <laughs> I've got to reference all these things. And I also wanted to. So it's so interesting that some people are really, um, really, really, really don't want to read at all when they're writing. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there are certain phases in the writing process where I'm not reading because I need yeah. to kind of cut everything out, but mm -hmm. not the whole time. It's phases. I'm exactly the same. My first book, obviously, because it was a memoir, I wasn't doing loads of research. Mm, um, yeah, it, it's not uh, like it's obviously factual, but it's not fact heavy. It's it's different. Yeah. Um, so I read, and I've always read memoir. I really, um, I'm really interested in memoir and different ways in which you can do it. So I read a lot when I was thinking about the book, but before I started writing it. And you're completely right. Once you're in the phase, when I was in the intense phase, I couldn't read fiction or nonfiction no. because um, fiction, because the book is told in quite a fictive way. Yes. But I was worried yeah. that the fiction would inflect kind of my storytelling and then the same with the nonfiction. But I don't know if that was partly, um, I don't want to say that writers who stop reading when they're writing or doing it out of insecurity because that's completely not true but for me I think it was just that like this is the first time I've done it and I didn't want to get like 
infected by other people or other people's ideas or the sound of other people's voices. So I just wanted to get mine out and down on the page. Whereas certainly the next time um, it's much going to be much more fact driven. Um, So there will obviously have to be the research stage. Yeah, Um, it's interesting, isn't it? I think it's for me, I definitely had little small periods where I was like, no, I just need to be head down and writing now. But you know, I wrote, I wrote that book for, well, I mean, sort of the majority of it was written in six months and I can't imagine not really reading for six months. Yeah, I didn't. Um, I started a memoir like February, March time, wrote the first draft, put it away and I didn't read. Like I actually felt sick. I felt sick if I picked up a book. Yeah. And I, I, I don't know if it was envy. I'm a little bit Oh, all right, I'm completely certain it was envy. I had a real, I had a complete reader's block. And I think it was like, I was unagented. The first draft wasn't wonderful. I knew it could be good, but it wasn't brilliant. And I was just like, and it had to work. Like I, I had to, the pressure was on for this to work. Otherwise... I was going to have to go and get a proper job. Um, yeah. So <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I kind of was just like disgusted by people who had their books bound and on the shelf and that kind of thing. So yeah. I um, drew and got the charcoal out and painted. So I was doing uh, something still But creative, just not taking things in. Different. Yeah, I wasn't Dead, taking yeah. things in because I think I was, because I wrote it so quickly in first draft form, I think I was really mulling over where to go and I was still working um, on the structure and yep. um, the, the actual proper content. So I think it was just that. And I mean, I just don't like one right way to write a book is though there's just lots of um muddling through and you need the dark hole actually another book on writing and it is oh where is it gone was right next to me before margaret atwood mm. so margaret atwood says it and it's got to be true um <laughs> <laughs> and i haven't read this and you showed it to me before we started and now i have to read it yeah um negotiating with the dead a writer on writing and i might actually have marked the passage not for this but just because I mark all passengers. Anyway, yes, all writers must go from now to once upon a time. All must go from here to there. All must descend to where the stories are kept. All must take care not to be captured and held immobile by the past. And then she talks about going down into the dark realms, the realms of the dark and being sucked down. yeah, where is the story? The story is in the dark. That is why inspiration is thought of as coming in flashes. Going into a narrative, into the narrative process, is a dark road. You can't see your way ahead. Poets know this too. They too travel the dark roads. The well of inspiration is a hole that leads downwards. Mm. And I can't help but agree. That's exactly yeah how it feels and she says it more elegantly than I ever could oh I'm definitely gonna um, get that one it's a brilliant book and you are you're just guzzling around in the dark hoping for the best and yeah then when you come out the other side you try and tell people that that wasn't at all what it was like there is a a a good and structured way to do it and then you hurl yourself back into the dark but I also think that's why books 
written by writers about writing or on their writing process um are really reassuring because they kind of they highlight that yeah I think they highlight that the no one right way is the right way yeah completely I love I'm completely obsessed with hearing writers talk about the way they write although I don't always listen because I want to do what they do because I think I mentioned already on the podcast that I don't like listening to what men do because I don't feel like any of it resonates with me in terms of like the practicalities but um but I'm fascinated with listening to how they do it because it's always different mm-hmm. and on that note one of my absolute favorites which is very famous and I'm sure lots of people listening will have read it is Stephen King's on writing mm-hmm. it is such a good well above anything else it is such a good memoir yeah. it's such a good memoir but it is a memoir about writing um and so I would re- if you like memoirs I would read it anyway but if you like writing and you like memoirs you will love it um I like it because it, it works on so many levels he talks about his relationship with his work the feverishness that, with which he writes um it's it's an also an addiction memoir it's sort of you know chronicles his his addiction with various different substances um and his way through that and his desperate fear that he was going to lose his ability to write when he was sober Mm. um and also then you know this horrific accident he had which I think was maybe about sort of 19 or 20 years ago now where he was hit by a car and his recovery was, was very lengthy and very painful and just not knowing whether he was ever going to be able to write again but through all of it technical writing advice is kind Mm. of woven through which is so brilliant and beautifully done um but but above all else there is just such a passion for work and also the thing I love about it is his relationship with his wife that is woven all the way through she is his first reader and she's incredibly influential on his books as a reader and it's interesting. I was listening to um, the Kazuo Ishiguro um, interview on Elizabeth Day's podcast the other day, which is oh, it's so good. It's so good. I'll link to it in the show notes. And his, he said his wife, you know, the way he talks about his wife as a reader sounds very, very similar. Um, and now, actually, he also says that now his daughter, who is now also a published author, yeah. um, is is now his second reader, <laughs> and so that it has to pass through both of them before before it goes to anyone, before it even goes to his agent or anything. But um, but yeah, so on writing by Stephen King, so good, and I I have it both on audio and on in paperback. And if you like audiobooks, do treat yourself to the audio because Stephen King reads it himself, and it is absolutely delightful. I know that um, a lot of people recommend on writing. We did. Um, we used quite a lot of extracts from it when I was on Miami. I've not read it in its entirety, but I have um, worked with select passages from it. Um, I think that John McCary uh, had a really similar relationship with his wife. Mm-hmm. She was um, not just, there was a beautiful article written by Nick Harkaway, um, their son, in the Guardian just recently talking yes, about how she it, yeah. yeah a beautiful article mm. how she was there um his editor as well really that she really really shaped his stories yeah. um and then I can't remember which way around it went I think she passed away very shortly after him yeah I think it was that way yeah exactly. yeah. yeah yeah um but I know that my my husband is certainly my first reader not always um easy for him because I sometimes um 
I gave him my memoir, which wasn't an easy read for him to have as a, to be a first reader, but he has read each iteration of it. And it's really, really valuable to have um, someone who you really trust to look at your work. I'm not sure he's always completely objective. Um, <laughs> you know, kill me for saying I'm not sure he's objective, but it's really nice <laughs> to have him. And um, I get really excited about the thought of being um, able to show him things and say, what about this? What do you think? Um, am I going mad here or am I not? I kind of, I need that sounding board. Mm. Um, so it's really helpful. My my boyfriend is definitely my number one champion. Um, I taught, I had, I was in the last stages of finishing my proposal for tender when we went on our first date and he's a poet. So he is a writer. So we talked about writing a lot about our first date and I told him the whole thing of the proposal, which is, if you've read my book, there's a lot of information for a first date. <laughs> and I, uh, He's still here, so I guess it went okay. Well, yeah, if he's still here, <laughs> but it's very good. handy being married. Oh, well, not being married, we're not married, but being with someone who is incredibly supportive. I think, in yeah, I think a, a sounding board can be really good. It just before it pops out my head, I thought of this while you were talking about Stephen King. Um, it's a book called How to Read a Novelist um, Conversations with Writers by John mm. Freeman, who used to um, edit Granta and has interviewed a whole host of enviable names um but it's really really interesting because it's it's like a um collected um who's who in the literary world really but conversations with them so it's all centered around their work and how they write and I think that that is, it's a brilliant book to dip in and out of. It also is one of these brilliant books that tells you other things to read and points you in the direction of other Ooh, things. I love because that. Yeah. I think that that's one thing that I absolutely love about writers is that they're always talking about what they're reading and talking about who they love and who they found interesting and who they found fascinating. So, um, so interviews with writers always have by their nature loads of other writers in them and that's what I also love I think about literary events as well I know the yes one thing too. that's great about this year is you know there's just all this stuff online so there's so much that you can search out and I also was just seeing today that Hay has confirmed that it's definitely all online again this year and there's going to be um I don't know how many maybe to possibly 200 events online over their usual online I mean that's just oh, what a treat for everybody wherever you are in the world we can yeah. um, we can just join in I know I think it's brilliant and that's something that quite a few people have asked both of us how you build your writing community and I think if you can have access to a writing group certainly what you can do to broaden your um, scope and ideas of and around writing is go to these virtual events and listen mm. to people talk about their work and talk about other people's work because I don't think I've ever been at an event where I haven't heard a writer talk about another writer I think they always mention other people's work they always yeah. mention influence or something else they've read or it's very rarely just about them or just about their work um 
And that's something that's absolutely brilliant because it kind of just broadens your access to ideas and to other references and other places to go, which is really what what um, reading around writing is about, isn't it? Yes. And um, on that note, a very recent book um, about writing that's on a kind of slightly more practical level Joanne Harris, who's the author of um, Chocolat and many, many other um, best-selling novels. Um, if you don't, if you're on Twitter and you don't follow her, <laughs> follow her immediately. She's such a brilliant writer to follow on Twitter. But she wrote, a, published a book, I think at the beginning of this year, the end of last year, I can't remember when it came out, it's quite recent, which is based on her tweets, essentially, um, which is that she started, I can't remember how many years ago she started doing this, but she started doing these 10 things about writing tweets and she would do 10 um a, tw a tweet thread of 10 things and she would um ask people what they wanted to hear about and some of them are very technical writing things and some of them are about publishing things and they're all sorts of things but she's put them together in this book and it's called 10 things about writing and it is such a joy it's such a joy and there's some really super practical stuff in there about building audiences and about mm. getting agent and about publishing and all these different things but also loads of great stuff about plot and character and all these things um, really so if you want like a like a really lovely reference book with little mm. bits of inspirational bits and pieces that book 10 things about writing uh, Joanne Harris it's lovely that is really clever actually just to pop it all together so it's kind of a potted um, advice that you can just go to um, yeah, I'm just trying to think what else I do <laughs> mm -hmm. well I do also here. love reading about writers lives mm. so the memoirs of writers um, you know, one of my favorite ones is Agatha Christie's autobiography. It is so good. I know it sounds like, it sounds so funny, an autobiography, which is literally like, um, you know, the beginning of my life to up until now, you know, like in chronological order. And you think, how could that be interesting? It's so fascinating. It's so fascinating. And one of the things that I love about it so much is that you know, she was, she's from this quite upper middle class family on the south coast of England. And, um, and, you know, she married, a, I guess, like a, her husband was like, um, I guess he's quite middle, like upper middle class, but not wealthy. They were not, not particularly wealthy, even though they were very kind of upper middle class, they were not particularly wealthy. But the thing I loved about it is the way she talked about, she 100% the whole way through had complete and utter confidence in herself as a writer and, and also completely took her career seriously right from the beginning. And so she, you know, became a mother in, in the 20s, 20s, 30s, 20s or 30s, kept writing 100% the whole way through. It was never a question. She even talks about the fact that, like, looking back, from an older age, she never ever questioned the fact that she would continue at very prolific levels of writing. Um, and the thing I love reading about that is just because she's sort of, even though, yes, yeah, she was very privileged to be able to do that, she's at a certain class that she could kind of break down some of those barriers. She very much had to kind of go against the grain to do those things and had to put her foot down and had to have her husband's, I guess, um, sort of um support to do those things um 
And she's fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And if anyone knows the story of Agatha Christie, she does go missing at some point in her yeah. life. I can't remember what it was. She doesn't mention it at all in her autobiography. She just completely yeah, but this doesn't is mention what, it. Yeah, no, she I skips love over this. the whole mystery, and she uh-huh. it, which is, again, in itself fascinating that she just doesn't ever mention it. Well, I think if you're thinking a little bit about um, unreliable narrators, I'm not sure that writers are perhaps the best people to narrate their own lives um, because I think that they will be um, perhaps quite guilty of cherry picking and oh, 100%. of embellishing this is a 100% as well. Cherry picked autobiography, and I love it for what it is. <laughs> but I think that because I'm pretty sure that Agatha Christie's daughter wrote a book. Um, I don't she know. She only had a son. If, oh, was it her son? So maybe it was oh, her son. Who, am I thinking of a completely different writer? I'm thinking, are you sure she didn't forget she had a daughter? She might have. She only has some. No, um, she might have. I mean, you read the autobiography and you can see she could probably <laughs> easily forget she had a child. Sure, I read. I didn't read it. There was a. Uh, Unless it was um, a daughter in law. There was a um, TV series. I think it was a mini series. And I think it was Helena Bonham Carter played Agatha Christie. I have this vivid picture in my head of it and I'm pretty sure that she was thought to be and this could have been again because of the time just a brutally awful mother <gasps> no you're thinking no 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 who no, am no. I thinking of Ina is this Blyton. a diff- that's it that's it who I'm Christina yes it's Enid Blyton because the irony obviously is that she wrote these um well wonderful it's a stretch but she wrote these very popular um, well they were incredible very magical children's stories oh i loved them when i was little very um very romanticized um from Mm -hmm. an adult point of view in the sense of like the the children were very very disciplined yes yes but yes no but um that's who i'm thinking of christie and are very much a similar generation yes and similar kinds of mothers in it you know quite distant shall we say mm. and that's what I mean about yeah. the class very much plays a massive role in this it's not you know it is a massive role but um but it, it's um <laughs> but it's still interesting to me I remember um whenever I would go to I think when I was perhaps when I was thinking about having children or maybe when I was also maybe when I was pregnant but I remember being um really really buoyed up when I would go to an art exhibition of um, a 20 a big 20th century um, female artist um, and I would see her whole career laid out you know like in the Tate Modern in those little like little um, excerpts they put in the beginning of each gallery and then the fact that they were a mother would be like a small note on one of the pages or maybe once or twice mentioned in the whole exhibition and for some reason that really um, I really loved that and not because mm-hmm. my children obviously aren't hugely important in my life but the fact that we could view someone's work and a woman's work and that they're, um, they're really really important contributions to art we could view them as a woman first and then a, and yes. as a mother second and I think that's why I love Agatha Christie's <laughs> biography so much or her autobiography so much because she is first and foremost a woman and a writer Mm-hmm. And she's secondary, a mother and a wife and all these other things. Um, and there's definitely a lot of privilege in that. And, and her class very much comes into that. But yeah, I do love it. It's like there's a lot of audacity, I think, in that, in, mm. the, ta- in the time that she's yeah. in, which I really loved. And I, and I feel awful um, to Agatha Christie now. I will um, 
apologize from well, this vantage point. She did go for on a round the world trip when for a year when her child was like three years old. Well, and left him behind. I mean, you, you know, got to it. <laughs> I think. Um, yeah, I think it's it's really fascinating looking um, at women artists and women writers, and I do find myself really drawn to. Um, female practitioners um, across the board because there is just so much um, complexity and so many barriers to being able to Mm, um, practice and being able to have that time that's taken to develop your form um, and to grow within your medium. I remember when I was doing my MA, I felt really assured when I um, heard a radio interview with A.S. Byatt, I think it was, and she was talking about um, uh, how when she wrote her first book, she would be stirring dinner and writing on the side. And Mm. that really resonated with me because I was stirring dinner and writing on the side and trying trying to juggle all these things all at once. And so I think that can be the thing as well. The more that you read about other writers, it demystifies their world it demystifies the whole thing and it reduces it down to you know everybody has the humdrum of the domestic to a greater or lesser extent yes it can be more privileged but you know everyone has to overcome something Agatha Christie obviously had to overcome the idea of what kind of mother she was supposed to be or what Mm. kind of wife she was supposed to be or the barrier that she would at some stage be earning a lot more than her husband Mm. all these kind of things um and I was quite fortunate when I was little because um, my granny was a really successful doctor and I didn't understand. I had like no inkling when I was little that that was unusual. I didn't have any idea. My grandpa was a headmaster and at that time teachers weren't well paid. So my granny was earning a lot more than my grandpa. Mm -hmm. Um, And it just was never an issue. So I just thought that's what life was like Mm. um, until I, got quite a sharp reality (laughs) shock later on in life but I think it's kind of if you don't have strong role models you can always find them somewhere you can always find someone who's doing it too and on that note and I'm reminded of this today particularly because I just found out today that um that um uh Charmian Cliffs Australian writer Charmian Clift who um, was very big in the mid 20th century. Um, she has a book back in print today, thanks to the British author, Polly Sanson, I think. Um, so um, the Charmian Cliff's book is called Peel Me a Lotus, which is coming out again today. And she was an Australian writer who was married to um, another author whose name was George Johnston, who was very famous at the time. Um, I don't know how much he's hung around since then, but they lived in um, Greece in the... 60s around the same time Leonard Cohen did and um, there was a kind of whole set of them that lived out there then Um, and she was a very um, I think well-known and very successful writer at the time and then she very much had to kind of um, bow to her husband's need Mm. to write and raise their children and became less and less prolific because of her need for her writer husband to become prolific and Polly Sampson the British author wrote um, a fictional account of their life um, in the book last that came out last year Theatre for Dreamers Um, and it is such a beautiful book and so brilliant and if you like reading about um, kind of 
artists enclaves and artists kind of bohemian life it is such a good book it's so beautiful but um but i read about charmian clift back in the 90s when i was at university in australia mm -hmm. um even in the 90s i think her books were mostly out of print but i found out about her from um she had she adopted a daughter adopted out the daughter at birth and who then discovered i think in the 70s or 80s that she was charmian's daughter who was this very famous writer and she went on this journey to find her to Greece mm -hmm. to kind of find her legacy and stuff but um but so so she's been in my imagination for a really really long time but um but you know today her book is being republished for the first time in many 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 decades um you know and I'm so excited to get it I've ordered it um and and you know this is a writer who had to put her whole career essentially aside because of her husband's more supposedly more important career than hers. Um, but if you do enjoy reading about writers and about the lives of writers, um, her the one that I'm getting that's been coming to reprint is her memoir, Peel Me a Lotus, and then also Polly Sampson's fictional account of their their lives is a theatre of dreamers, which is yeah, so beautiful. So beautiful. And I presumably it's out in paperback now or very, very soon, but it came out last summer. Yeah. I'll need to read also so you told me about this um last summer so I remember you telling me about their enclave and going into it and you were so excited about it so it's amazing that her work is back in print yeah it's incredible yeah, and, um, and Polly Sampson's written the forward for the book and it's just so incredible to see like a writer who has um, was so prolific in the mid 20th century and then was forgotten essentially mm -hmm. because they had to make way for their husband and then to see them back in print again and stuff and um and I think actually we're seeing this a lot with um with women writers who were very popular in the early 20th century and then kind of went out of fashion and have come back into fashion again mm. in fact there's a memoir uh, not a memoir sorry an, a biography about Barbara Pym which is being published in the next month or so and I'm gonna have to look up who's who's written it and um, put it in the show notes but I'm so excited because I've only very recently got into Barbara Pym because so many British friends have recommended her um, and she was very very popular in the in the 50s and early 60s but then sort of went out of fashion and um, and has become more I think never has never gone out of print but has become much more like kind of um, fashionable again and mm. I'm so excited to read the the biography of her it'll be thrilling I think that's power of writing as well, isn't it? That you kind of have the power to um, rekindle interest in people and bring people back from the land of the disappeared. I think it's incredible. It's such a um, such an exciting thing to be able to do and to see people doing. And it feels like this kind of tradition of um, women who understand how difficult it is to be a woman writer and and what you have to what you have to give up, you have to give up an awful lot. Um, and for that sacrifice not to be in vain as well, for them to be able to bring mm. somebody back and then be um, back on the page and for their work to come back into the public eye is just incredible. Yeah, I also, over the Christmas holidays, because I, I read so much over Christmas and I just read like just super enjoyable, like whatever I fancied, kind of just inhaled good fun stories. And one of the things I read was um, the Jane Austen Society, which is fictional, but I'm not sure how aligned it is with the truth, but it's set in the, it's post-war 
written about the group of people that got together and saved the Jane, Aust Jane Austen's cottage and turned it into a um, into a heritage site. And in through the course of this novel, they talk about how Jane Austen had gone quite out of fashion in I think the late nineteenth century had gone very out of fashion, and then. I think in the 30s she just started to come back into fashion again and, and there was much more interest in her again but it's incredible isn't it you know we talk about someone like Jane Austen now um where there are with you know such reverence and there's so much academic study about her and about her craft and about her skill as a novelist and yet she was in and out of fashion for the last 200 years exactly and it's these cycles but you're never um really properly gone if you have your work um at least in the library even if it's not in print there's always the chance that someone can bring back which is actually something really reassuring about this kind of stab at immortality that we're all making it is so, um, yeah there's something weirdly reassuring about that isn't it the idea i know that's the funniest thing about publishing a book you know when you get you know and getting an isbn number and um and knowing that I my book must be in the British Library. It's all catalogued, it's all it's still there, there which is it's incredible. <laughs> and um, that's what um, Atwood is talking about in Negotiating with the Dead, is that uh, she's trying to, uh, she loves talking to other writers about their childhood and trying to find this common, if there is a common, at mm. what point did you have the flash and know you were going to be the writer and this kind of thing. But she um, talks about how all writers the thing she seems to think that they have in common is this um, fear of death or this negotiating with death, this understanding of the um, finite nature of our life. And I think that that is certainly something that has um, motivated me in a slightly like over the top narcissistical way of, well, at least something will still be here. Even if it's just a few hundred pages of a book it's still it's still more than not having it which is quite funny but yeah well I mean we have slightly romped all over that topic in various different directions but that's okay I mean I feel like it's fun to romp all over the place hugely stimulating <laughs> it's, it is fun and sometimes I think you just have to go feast a little bit and then try and come back again um but with that what have you been reading this week well we were talking about this before I mean I've been reading a lot of women's prize books that we've decided to, to not talk about until <laughs> we're ready to talk about them which is slightly infuriating because they're so good just so good um and now I really feel for I know I've heard Elizabeth Day talk about the worst thing about being a judge on the prize is not being able to talk about um fiction written by women for about five months um but so um what I have been reading which is slightly work related but um but I it was really enjoyable and I'm sure lots of people enjoy it is um a book called Fair Play by Eve Rodsky and it's about um the gender division of labor in the home and it's really interesting and I think the thing that she does a little bit differently to other people who have written about it who I absolutely love that have written about this topic of emotional labor and invisible labor is she's come up with a solution and she, because she's a um oh gosh I, I'm probably not going to describe this correctly but she works as like a in non like her background is in non-profits as like a, a negotiator and so uh, her actual background is in communication and negotiation. 
at a very high kind of UN level, like mm-hmm. very, very high. And that was part of the thing in the book. She was like, I can't believe that I, I can do this professionally. And I literally can't, I've got to this point where these things have happened in a relationship and I can't even have a conversation with my husband with both mm. of us getting annoyed. And, um, and so the thing that's so interesting about fair play is about, yes, she unpacks all the systemic problems and all the reason that women are left with the majority of the load. And she calls it the, um, the she fault parent rather than the default parent because it's usually the woman and how we end up in these situations with, that we do not plan on being in you know women of our generation planned on things being different and then yet somehow we have ended up in these quite often accidentally traditional relationships and um, and she has some really like some actual solutions so I would highly recommend anyone who is coupled to read it I mean it's slightly less relevant to me um, not being coupled, but um, but it's still fascinating anyway. So I'd recommend it. Sounds really fascinating. I know that the um, division of labour in our house has shifted a lot in the pandemic. And I know mm. that I've been hugely fortunate in that it hasn't necessarily shifted in ways that it has for other people. Yes. Um, we share a lot more than we shared before simply because my husband is here. Yes. And, so and that has are, been true for lots of people, yeah. Yeah, because my husband's here um, and because... Um, I have been very ill with COVID and Mm. long COVID and so there's been a lot less that I can do it doesn't mean that I find it um, I've been quite surprised by how uncomfortable I feel Mm. about it having shifted um, and how guilty I feel I feel I've placed a lot of um, value as to how I felt how good a mother I thought I was by how much laundry I did these these are all topics that Eve Wonsky Mm. dives into very neatly and nicely in the book which is that um you know we are complicit in our own Mm -hmm. traps if that's what is happening in your household Mm. obviously that's not happening in every single household but but this idea that we are complicit in the way that we our lives have um have gone um because and it's not because it's our fault necessarily but because because of the the mess, all the messages we receive around us, oh, yeah, being so about placing value on these mm-hmm. sorts of things, um, and about what makes us a good mother, and and exactly what you say. So yeah, it's not easy. It's not easy to to accept change, even though you know change is necessary or change is on the cards and on offer. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily easy to accept that either. So it is a really fascinating book, and I would I would very much recommend it. Mm, it sounds really fascinating. I will definitely take a look at it. Yeah, sounds good. So I haven't been um, reading, or I have been, I've been reading a lot, but I've not been reading anything that I can talk about just now um, because of our Women's Prize mission and because I'm reading um, books uh, by some guests that we've got coming up, which yeah. will be very exciting and brilliant shows. And also because I am really elbow deep in work as well. So it's yeah. sometimes something has to slip, but I think it it helps to be honest and say no. I've not been able to read for pleasure this week. I have, however, talking of um, women coming back from the dead or coming back from being forgotten. I have been discovering and become obsessed with an incredible artist not because I have been reading any uh, set texts about her but I've been reading a lot about her um, and about the process of weaving uh, because textiles uh, were my first love and uh, she's called Lenore Tawney and she was an American artist 
fiber artist, as they would say in America, textile artist here. Um, but I think fiber probably describes her work um, mm. better than textiles because uh, she really took 2D forms and turned them into something that was 3D. She moved cloth beyond its usefulness. She moved fiber beyond the usefulness of it being for the body and created new forms with it, these incredible, fast, wonderful new forms. But um, because weave um, has always really been seen as the female preserve in the female domain it's never really received the same critical attention that painting or sculpture has has um, attained so her work is wonderful she started to practice when she was 40 which mm. is something that I think a lot of readers not readers listeners I'm getting confused about audience here I think a lot of <laughs> listeners will find really interesting she started when she was 40 and she died when she was 100 uh -huh. and she had this Amazing. rich beautiful 60 years of building her practice of committing herself a lot of her work is um almost devotional it's almost like monastic in its attention to detail she's an incredible artist she wasn't solely a fiber artist she drew as well um and did collages and assemblages and she is just absolutely incredible she is just stolen my imagination this week and run away with it and I am like hook line and sinker obsessed with her and by her and her work and um yeah it makes me want to sit down at a loom again but that's what I've been doing in lieu of reading I have used a lot of reading time reading online about her um there's a short film about her as well so I just I've just been stunned by what she could create with thread it's absolutely amazing Excellent. Oh, well, I'm looking forward to watching that film and we'll put that in the show notes as well. Oh, well, that was a fun and rambling one. I suspect we'll come back to this topic again because there's so much that we could talk about. There's so much. I think there's um, so much that, you know, how I read and what I read is it's a, it's a work in progress as much as anything else. Exactly. It's always changing as projects change and as you kind of get more confident and, yeah. We've barely said. even touched fiction as well, which is a whole other thing. Um, well, that was lovely. And um, I'll speak to you again next week. See you next time. You've been listening to Not Too Busy to Write with Ali Miller and Penny Windsor. You can find show notes, including the best ways to get in touch with us, as well as any reading recommendations mentioned in the episode at nottoobusytowrite.com. And if you're enjoying the show, don't forget to subscribe. And please go ahead and leave us a little review. It really helps others to find the podcast. You can find Ali on Instagram at Ali underscore Miller underscore writes and Penny at Penny Windsor. Music and editing is by Ewan Miller McMeekin. <laughs>